You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we'll be discussing Death Hunt, released May 21st, 1981. It was written by Michael Grace and Mark Victor, directed by Peter R. Hunt, and released by 20th Century Fox. In 1931, a man going by the name Albert Johnson constructed a cabin in the Canadian wilderness and, without a hunting license, started pestering a pack of local trappers by ruining their traps and waving a gun at them whenever they crossed paths. Eventually, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police were called to task, sparking a nearly seven-week manhunt across 150 miles of frigid Arctic landscape. The film has been criticized by Canadian historians for its inaccurate portrayal of the origins of the chase. Well, to say, yeah, I mean, up until this very moment, I didn't know it was based on a true story. Yeah, yeah. And based on what you just said, that is not what the film is about. Very different. (laughs) Raymond Chow's production company, Golden Harvest, typically a purveyor of Hong Kong martial arts cinema, struck a six-film deal in the late 70s that resulted in four finished films, High Road to China, The Cannonball Run, Battle Creek Brawl, and this. Is it The Cannonball Run? Yeah. Is it different than Cannonball Run? There's a movie called Cannonball that stars David Carradine, and it's also about a Cannonball Run, but The Cannonball Run is the Burt Reynolds, Dom DeLuise one, I believe. Oh, I always thought it was just called Cannonball Run. Well, it stars Jackie Chan, so that's why I think it's probably the same one. Huh. Can you double check? Yeah, uh, Cannonball, The Cannonball Run uh, is... With Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise? Yeah, Burt Reynolds, Dom DeLuise, Jackie Chan. But then, so The Cannonball Run is the first one, and then Cannonball Run 2 is the second one. Oh, they took the 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 off for the the. second film. There's no the on the second one. Weird. I didn't realize that was a Golden Harvest film. This one doesn't even have any famous Chinese-American actors in it, whereas the other three did, obviously. High Road to China would. Cannonball Mm -hmm. Run and Battle Creek Brawl both star Jackie Chan, so... The two that were never finished included The Texans with director Sam Peckinpah from a script by John Milius and Horizons, an adaptation of actor Hardy Kruger's novel of the same name. The working title of this film was Arctic Rampage, however the trailer shows a title card that reads Yukon, even as the announcer voice says Death Hunt. I'm assuming this is a foreign title since foreign titles don't need to be as exciting as American titles. Well, I like the title Yukon better. Yeah. Because Death Hunt is... Uh, I feel an inaccurate title. Mm. Yeah, I think it's also an attempt to profit off of Bronson's involvement with the Death Wish series. So for sure, this got rented by accident. (laughs) They definitely tried to make it sound more exciting than it it was. Yes. Dirty Dozen director Robert Aldrich was hired to direct his Dirty Dozen stars Lee Marvin and Charles Bronson, but producers Albert S. Ruddy and Raymond Chow were unclear about the film's budget. And when production began, Aldrich was on pace to double it quickly and was removed from the project. Aldrich appealed his firing through the DGA, claiming that the maximum budget was never clearly communicated and was awarded $25,000 when the guild ruled in his favor. You'd have to you'd have to be 
being willfully ignorant to not know what the budget is. No, they, they, I think it was because it was such a new production partnership that they literally, both of them thought that the other person had told him what the movie was going to cost and they just moved yeah, forward. Yeah, but it's his responsibility to also be like, how much do I got to spend on this? And yeah, if but he if, doesn't, he's being willfully ignorant about how much it, how much sure. he has to spend on this. Well, either way, he was fired before he was notified that he was going over budget. And because he was fired technically without cause, he was awarded a $25,000 settlement. Okay. In addition, he kept the paycheck he received for his full directing duties. Producer Ruddy filed a countersuit seeking the return of his directing fee and other damages regarding casting problems. After Aldrich approached Angie Dickinson and Ron Howard to play roles without consulting the producers. Aldrich was also accused of disrupting talks with Telly Savalas for the Sergeant Millen role that he would eventually pass on, but the outcome of Ruddy's suit is unknown. Longtime Bond editor and eventual director Peter Hunt was brought on to replace Aldrich after proving himself capable of directing action on a snowy mountain with On Her Majesty's Secret Service. At the time, Strother Martin and Joan Collins were attached to the film, probably with Martin as Millen and Joan Collins in the role that eventually went to Angie Dickinson, but obviously neither appear in the final film. Apparently, Peter Falk was also in the mix for the Millen role, which I think would have been fun, but I'd be hard-pressed to think of a movie character I wouldn't like to see Peter Falk take over. Yeah. I think Dickinson even said she understood why Collins passed on it and basically admitted that she wouldn't have done the film if it were shot anywhere else, but it was a free trip to Banff for her, so she was like, I'll Mm -hmm. go. Upon completion, Chow sold the film off to 20th Century Fox. And Richard, you pointed me in the direction of an unfinished Oliver Reed film called The Mad Trapper from 1978. Yeah, uh, I came across it in my research. I don't even really... I think um, an an unrelated other film person led me to this. Right. Uh, The uh, uh, Len... I'm going to butcher his name. Len Carew. Yeah, that's how uh, I'm going to pronounce it, too. I don't know. Uh, yeah, he led me to this movie, and I saw The Mad Trapper, and I was like, well, well that was the name of the guy. It can't be it's a coincidence. Be. But, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't officially confirm that it was a retelling of the same story, but it was also due to shoot in Banff, where this film shot, and it was apparently relying on a half-million-dollar grant from the government of Saskatchewan, but it turned out that they were never guaranteed any money, and by the second week of production, people's checks weren't clearing, so the project was just shut down completely. But it also starred Leslie Nielsen, Len Carew, who we're going to see shortly in uh, The Four Seasons, and Gordon Tatusis, whose work we've discussed on our MacGyver podcast. Yeah. Weirdly, though, the unfinished film is listed on IMDb as a comedy, which seems like a mistake, because this is pre-airplane. This would have been 78, mm-hmm. with Leslie Nielsen and Oliver Reed doesn't seem like a comedy to me well also the subject matter isn't not very comedic you can make a comedy out of a manhunt i suppose yeah because it would be more like uh mountain men which again wasn't super funny but it wasn't (laughs) i don't know i'll have to look that one up and see if that's listed as a comedy (laughs) i do remember that uh heston's son wrote it and that he was pissed off that it was not as dark as what he originally wrote so maybe it is listed as a comedy we start with a title card. This motion picture is based on a true story. So that's why you didn't know. Because <laughs> it was in there. <laughs> right there at the beginning. I don't read the titles. <laughs> the first credit announces that this is a Golden Harvest picture, which feels like a weird fit, though I believe they also produced the first three Ninja Turtles movies, the live action features. Oh, okay. For the rest of the opening credits, we are floating through snow-covered mountains just before dawn. The sun starts peeking over a mountain range, and we cut to a man on horseback moving through deep snow. 
We see a pistol in a holster branded with the initials AJ, which we will learn stand for Albert Johnson, whose face we haven't seen yet, but he's being played by Charles Bronson. We get another insert of the horse and notice that it's pulling a sled along behind it, and we hard cut to a dog fight. Both dogs viciously snap at each other, faces matted with blood as a circle of men cheer them on. I did not expect this opening. Yeah. I was like, I was like, oh, how, how beautiful. Peaceful mountains, horses. Bloody dogs. Bloody dogs. <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I was like, I was like sitting here on the verge of texting you guys and be like, I don't think I can watch this movie. Yeah. But, you know, it's. It, it's over quick. It's, it sort of turns around and then it doesn't. <laughs> the dog losing the fight belongs to a man named Hazel, as played by Ed Lauder. For the record, I paused a few times during this scene, and the dog's mouths are actually strapped shut, so it's not a real nasty fight. Oh, like, good. they're not biting each other. I was so sure they were. So. They're, they're made up to look bloody. I'm glad that's the case. Hazel loses his patience with his dog and marches into the fight to kill the dog himself, but he's suddenly tossed effortlessly to the ground by Albert Johnson, who moves in to inspect the losing dog. One of the men assumes Johnson is here to kill the winning dog, and Hazel approaches Johnson with a knife. Johnson tosses the man over his shoulder to the ground and puts a boot on Hazel's neck, offering to buy the half-dead dog. He drops a $100 bill in the man's face, which today is the equivalent of paying $1,787 for a dog. Well, depending on the dog, that, that might not be a lot. I ain't selling. Not for no hundred. That dog's worth 200 Johnson drops another bill on him bringing the present-day value of the dog to $3,574. And Hazel, testing the limits here, clarifies that when he said the dog is worth 200 that he meant that's what he paid for it, but it's probably worth 1000 now, which is the equivalent of $17,874. Do you guys recall the last time a man offered to buy a dog out of a dog fight in the Yukon Territory for north of $16,000? Here's a hint. It was a minisode, so you probably don't. Oh, <laughs> that's mean. <laughs> In Klondike Fever, 1980, one of our first minisodes this year, Jack London bought a dog out of a dog fight for $500 in 1897, which would mean $16,367 in 2021 bucks. Johnson walks away carrying the dog without paying any additional money, so he seems to have maxed out on the price at 200 He lays the dog across his sled, and all the men watch, and make plans to avenge what they're interpreting as a theft. Well, okay. And I have to say that as much as I appreciate what he's doing, going in and saving this dog, who's probably going to die if he did not do that, technically I think that they he did steal the dog. I don't think so because he paid way above market value for he a dog that they were about a bunch to of money, murder. But that doesn't mean that I could walk into anybody's house and throw a bunch of money down and be like, I'm taking this because you sold it to me. If you pay that way above stealing. market value. No, no, no. It doesn't fine. matter. If somebody's not selling, I'm just going to make stealing. the offer right now. If anyone wants to come in here and pay more than market value for anything in my house, take it. Take it and run. <laughs> just leave your money on the ground. <laughs> no, you're right. It's illegal what he's doing, but it's obviously not evil and it's not. it doesn't warrant a manhunt. Especially when Hazel was literally about to kill this dog for no, losing the I, fight. I absolutely 100% agree with you that the punishment for paying too much for a dog he didn't want to sell is not death. Right. So, you know, but at the same time, it is stealing. Sure. 
We hard cut to the Rat River Cemetery with the title Yukon Territory, November 1931. A man drives a horse-drawn cart into the town of Rat River. All the dog-fighting trappers from the hills are coming into town. They take note of a Canadian Mountie riding up in a bright red uniform. He asks Hazel and the boys for directions to Sergeant Millen, and they are suspiciously cooperative. They lead him to the back room of the local general store where Sergeant Edgar Millen, as played by Lee Marvin, is getting proper wasted. I guess it's a bar, not a general store. Well, it's, it's kind and of it's like both. a multi- yeah. Hazel complains about his stolen dog, insisting Millen take action. The young Mountie introduces himself as Constable Alvin Adams and hands his papers to Millen. Later, we see Hazel hounding Millen for dog justice again, but Millen lets Hazel know that he happens to be informed on the details and the dog was near death when Johnson bought him away, but Hazel claims that's all a lie. Alvin Adams tells Millen that he's going to install a two-way radio system in town, but Millen doesn't seem to trust technology. We cut to Albert Johnson pulling up to a trading post at dusk. It's run by a man named W.W. Douglas, and he seems friendly enough. Johnson hands the man a wish list, and W.W. assumes that he's out here hunting grizzlies based on the ammo he's requesting. W.W.'s dialogue here is very poorly ADR'd, and for a while I was sure that my computer was lagging out, but all of Bronson's lines are fine, so I think they just changed everything he said in this scene. W.W. tries to convince Johnson to stay the night here, but he leaves the cabin wordlessly. We cut back to Millen's office where he's losing a card game to Sundog, as played by Carl Weathers, while Alvin continues fiddling with the two-way radio system. The whining radio signal is annoying Millen, but Alvin assures him it's almost ready. Alvin is very by the books and suggests that instead of tracking down Johnson, they probably should have arrested the men who confessed to illegal dog fights. But Millen says that if they don't fight dogs, they kill each other, and that's much more paperwork than just ignoring dog fights. Sundog jokes that they'll have to build a big new jail to hold all the people the constable wants to arrest. We cut back to Johnson's camp, where he is tending to the injured dog by a small campfire. Back in the Mountie cabin, Alvin starts to undress for the night, and a Native American woman in Sundog's bed sees him and laughs at his long johns, and he starts to cover up, embarrassed. Sundog invites Alvin to share the woman, but he's not interested. The next day, Johnson's dog is recovering well. Johnson is putting the finishing touches on the roof of a log cabin. He cuts a piece of jerky from a string and invites the pup to take it from him. The dog growls on approach, but eventually gets close enough to take the snack. It's not a very convincing growling, though. Just an open dog mouth with growls clumsily edited into yeah. it. Yeah. We cut elsewhere in the woods where the Mounties are hunting. Alvin takes down a deer, and Sundog compliments his marksmanship. Do you guys recall the last time someone's marksmanship was complimented on a hunting trip? He killed oh, a rabbit. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It was uh, the howling. That's right. Millen is grumpy about the hunt, but Alvin blames his attitude on his alcoholism. Sundog says he wasn't always like that. The trappers find Johnson's cabin. They make vague plans, and Maury Chaikin's character, Clarence, says this is the dumbest thing he's ever done. Oh, yeah? What about Leon? I get my dog, that's what we're gonna do. Thought I asked you not to bring that up again, Deke. Bring what up? Oh, uh, what's his name? Leon? Yeah. That's dumb. <laughs> yeah. Shut up, Deke. You're dumb. <laughs> Deke goes on teasing Clarence until he crosses some sort of invisible line with the words. You're dumb! <laughs> you're, you're dumb! You're so dumb! You're so dumb I could sell you dirt! 
Bong. Yeah, that was. That's all it took for old Deke. Yeah. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Hazel sends Deke and Clarence up to the cabin. As they approach the porch, the dog is alerted and barks. Johnson opens the door and they pretend they're here for food and shelter. He orders them to lay down their rifles and calls the dog inside before giving them permission to build a fire with some of his wood. When he closes the door again, the men surround the cabin on all sides. Johnson steps out with food for the men and everyone starts firing on him. The dog races up to Hazel and attacks him until one of Hazel's men, Jimmy Tom, shoots the dog and kills it. Jimmy is promptly shot through the skull as well. Yeah, so I was like happy that they didn't kill the dog originally and I was like, oh, okay, all right, I'll give this movie a chance. And, and then, then they kill the dog, they kill the dog anyways. I'm like, god damn it, movie. But then they killed the guy who killed the dog. It's not <laughs> enough. They also squibbed a dog in this. <laughs> or at least dog fur. Yeah. Like it, it's a really close up yeah. shot. Richard is suggesting that they killed the dog and skinned it mm-hmm. and then squibbed the dog's skin. Johnson ducks back into the cabin while the trappers take stock of their attack. They're one man down and they're ready to see Johnson hung for murder even though they started the shooting. We cut from Johnson mourning the dog's death back to Millen's office where he's meeting with the new widow of a recently deceased man named Percy McBride. I don't know who this character is. We haven't seen anybody die before the guy that just got shot, and that news hasn't made its way down the hill yet. Well, and I thought that that's who this was. At first, and then later. I thought that this was uh, Jimmy Tom's widow. Right. But it's not. Because she's so not broken up about it. Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, so I guess that's that. She thanks Millen for presenting her with her dead husband's useless effects, a broken watch, a hunting license, and she confesses that she really didn't give a shit about the guy anyway. Because it wasn't until now that I, that I fully realized how little I cared for the man. Millen dips his cigar in a topped-off shot glass and raises a toast to the widow, and we cut right to them dancing hours later in the cabin. Do you guys recall the last time we saw someone dip a cigar in an alcoholic beverage? I I do. do. Who was it? What was the character's name? Oh. Hot dog? Yes. Hot dog. Hot dog. <laughs> it was kill, kill kill, and kill again. That is correct. At a nearby table, Sundog and Alvin are taking big swigs from a bottle, and the Native American woman is now sitting in Alvin's lap. Sundog advises Alvin to pace himself in a drinking contest. Sundog tells Alvin that back home in Louisiana, his uncle taught him to drink, and even named a whiskey after him, but Millen interrupts to point out that Sundog whiskey preceded the man by about a century. Millen suggests that Sundog share his real name with the new member. George Washington Lincoln Brown. Millen fills in the rest of his backstory, explaining that he was a swell pitcher for the Negro Leagues and tried to infiltrate the majors by claiming to be a Mexican. As a reminder, this is Carl Weathers we're talking about, so not a convincing Mexican. They wouldn't let him in because, as Sundog explains, he was too good, and the widow, Mrs. McBride, agrees that they'd never let an African-American player embarrass a white player on that stage. The Native American woman tells the group in a language that only Sundog seems to understand that she really wants to fuck Alvin and she's going to go wait in the bedroom for him. It's called the language of love, Pat. Right. (laughs) But only Sundog speaks it. Well, there's nothing in the books that says fucking's against the law. (laughs) (laughs) The the F-bombs that are dropped in this film are so unnecessary. Yeah. (laughs) Mrs. McBride looks happy to learn this and we cut right to her and Millen in bed together. 
They are interrupted by the clamor of Hazel busting into the cabin and shouting into Millen's face about the recent murder of Jimmy Tom outside of Johnson's cabin. He demands Millen take immediate action. I'll take care of it. Jimmy Tom is dead! I told you I would take care of it. The trappers touch base with WW at the outpost for more info on who Johnson is and how well stocked up. 700 rounds of ammunition. Bought it all. He had a lot of money. WW shares his suspicion that Albert Johnson was actually the Mad Trapper, a local serial killer who collects the gold teeth of his victims. I should mention here that in real life, Albert Johnson was a pseudonym, and they really had no guesses as to the actual identity of the man. It's just a name that he started using when he moved into this right. town. He was also known as the Mad Trapper, who was not, as far as I could tell, an actual serial killer, though the film implies that Albert Johnson is being mistaken for this other criminal character. W.W. tells the men that all of Johnson's money must come from selling the teeth, but Alvin's not buying it. Uh, it doesn't make sense. Listen here, the highfalutin expert. Tell us what makes sense. Well, I just figure any man who risks his neck to save a dog's life isn't going to kill somebody for gold teeth. Wrong, boy. He's the mad trapper, all right. Millen leads Deke outside the trading post to get him alone and demand an accurate account of what happened outside Johnson's cabin. Millen doesn't buy the story as is, because he has identified the bruising mark on Deke's face as the result of a rifle butt, but there's no way that he was close enough to get clocked and didn't have the chance to kill Johnson. When Deke refuses to answer, Millen punches him back into the shop, and he confirms Johnson shot first. The next day, we see the men leading Jimmy Tom's body out of town, wrapped up and draped over a horse. At the same time, Millen, the trappers, and the RCMP are all grouping together to locate the alleged murderer. We cut to the snowy wilderness where Albert Johnson sneaks up on a man who not only hears him coming, but identifies him without looking. Don't kill me, Albert. Albert calls the man Bill and complains that the world is too crowded. This reminded me of the character from The Mountain Men that was friends with the Charlton Heston character. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. Bill tries to warn Johnson about new people and technology in the town. He wants Johnson to know what he's up against. Bill mentions Johnson's dad, and Johnson says that he died in a prison hospital, the implication being that Johnson has no intention of being taken in alive. They part ways. Thank you, Albert. We cut to Johnson sawing off the end of a shotgun the way that movie heroes do before a big battle. Yeah. Does that work? I would like, I mean, I assume it's just... To... Widens the spread. Mm-hmm. Okay. I feel like you would cause problems with your aim if the barrel wasn't perfectly you know straight anymore i think that's the point is that you you're if you're shooting at six people you want to hit more of them that way than if you're directing all oh. your buckshot in is one. that what it's supposed to do i kind of assumed it was just so that you'd have more uh agility because it was shorter well i i won't say that that's not part of it um but the general idea is that rather than doing really intense focused damage like a long barrel shotgun would do, you're doing less intense widespread damage. Uh, okay. But he also seems to be carrying one of each with the purpose of, you know, he has one arm for a focused shot and then another arm for general damage. He starts digging a hole in his cabin and shoveling dirt out the door and then takes an axe to the logs that form his back wall. Millen leads the Mounties to the cabin with the trappers. He advises Alvin to stay close to him. The trapper set up post all around the cabin. Millen calls out to Johnson and announces that he wants to speak man to man. When they first come up, they're like kind of like all ducking behind a large downed tree. Right. Uh, and Millen 
is there with Alvin, like in the Alvin's like closer to the camera than Millen. When Millen yells Johnson, Alvin goes ah. like he freaks out. <laughs> yeah, like he like the actor wasn't ready for Marvin to suddenly <laughs> shout right then and there. Millen heads to the door, and when he gets there, Johnson opens a window and puts the sod off in Millen's face. You don't look like a madman. You look like a Mountie. For the record, anyone pointing a shotgun in your face looks like a madman, but you should also never tell them that. (laughs) Millen explains that because of the death, he has no choice and Johnson needs to be brought in for questioning. He gestures to the row of gunmen that would like nothing more than to fire on him, and even refusing this request might give them an excuse. Millen promises Johnson safety if he cooperates, but he doesn't pretend that he can control these men if Johnson puts up a fight. As if on cue, one of the men fires a round at the wall between them, and considering how accurate guns were at the time, it might have been funny if he just accidentally killed Millen with his stupid prank shot. Mm. Johnson fires a single shot back and gets the same man in the neck. The rest of the men all open fire around the cabin as Millen scrambles out of the line of fire. He pleads with his men to hold their shots. Sorry, just to be clear, this is 1939? 31. 31. 31. Okay. Were guns particularly inaccurate at that point? Well, they seem very inaccurate for the rest of the film. Yeah, but, like, they also seem inaccurate, you know, like, in a galaxy far, far away. Like, right. I just... You, 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 that was even further back, though. That's, I guess. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but I just mean that he's doing this like it's a trick shot. He literally fired in the, in the sliver between two men that were talking to just get a rise out of them. But then later they can't hit the guy when he's just standing there in the doorway. Yeah, that's true. So are you so are you saying that he intentionally shot between them? I think so because he laughs about it after he fires uh, the shot. I yeah, I don't know. I guess I didn't consider that intentional. I'm like I thought that was accidental. I think he was just trying to liven things up and so he fired a shot between them to be like, "Look what I can do." But then later on he can't hit anything. Well, cuz he's dead. That's <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the, the only guy that could shoot really well just got hit in the neck and died uh yeah he, he doesn't hit anything else for the rest of yeah. the movie he pleads with the men to hold their fire inside the cabin johnson levels his gun on a second target as millen walks over to the dead trapper and kicks his corpse while blood is still spurting out of the man's neck now he has even less choice about bringing him in to provide his testimony he lectures the men around him for the mess they've gotten themselves into i hope you sons of bitches can finish what you started By which I assume he means he wants one of them to kill Johnson immediately. He tells the other Mounties that the roof of the cabin is slathered in mud to prevent burning him out, and he has slits cut low in the walls to shoot out of. Presuming that Johnson is firing with his belly to the floor, he advises his men to shoot low. Inside, we see Johnson leaning against a corner of the rock stack fireplace, loading his weapon. All at once, the entire circle of trappers and Mounties begin firing low on the cabin, All that is, except Alvin, who is too scared to fire on the man. In wider shots, we can see that Johnson didn't just dig a hole in the place. He dug practically a full basement two feet below the surface of the ground for the entire surface area of the cabin floor. So when he's standing up, only his knees are like right at ground level. So I feel like the, the second he took this dog, he must have started preparing for them to come for him? This was... He he started digging after the first attack. Yeah. After they killed the dog. 
Because it probably took him a couple of days to get back to town. Oh, you think so? You think that's how long it's been between these two incidents? Yeah. yeah. Oh, he's, okay. he's pretty far off track. Okay. Because I was just like, how did he do all this so quickly? Yeah. And digging in frozen ground isn't the easiest thing in the right? world either. I mean, th- this isn't where the snow is, but it's still cold for sure. I suppose his, in, inside his cabin, is yeah. probably the ground is warmer. Yeah. After almost a minute of continuous firing, they all cease and quiet fills the air. A one-eyed man named Charlie is elected to check and see if the man is dead and collect his scalp for the certain reward. I'm going to get his scalp. Go get him, Charlie. (laughs) They're just like, yeah, you do it. One-eyed Charlie's on the case. That sounds like a euphemism. (laughs) (laughs) Charlie shoulders in the front door and he finds Johnson lying on the ground with a gun pointed up at him. He fires a shotgun into Charlie's gut and blasts him back out the doorframe. Now it's Johnson's turn to pick off more men from the slots he cut in the walls, and eventually the men are firing back. Johnson spots a man named Lewis firing over a small woodpile, and he gets him through the eye. Alvin has to lead Lewis to safety since he can't see, but on their way back behind the tree line, Alvin walks him in front of Ned Warren, as played by William Sanderson, who accidentally shoots Lewis in the back, killing him. Was it an accident? I think he was trying to shoot at the cabin, and they walked right in front of him. Okay. For the record... Johnson bought a dog. They killed it. They fired on him. He fired back and killed one. They fired on him again. He fired back and injured one. And then they killed one of their own men so far. Yeah. But he stole a dog. He stole a dog. (laughs) For $200. (laughs) (laughs) He already paid more than the fee uh, for stealing a dog. Warren doesn't seem broken up about the friend he shot, mostly annoyed that they blocked his view. Alvin picks up his rifle and starts emptying it rapidly until Millen catches him and points out that he hasn't fired a shot. Warren is crawling to a better shooting spot and puts his elbow in a bear trap and is quickly bleeding from the arm. Millen and Sundog help him out of the trap and knock him unconscious for ease of transportation. We get a quick insert of the three dead men around the cabin and cut to later that night Millen's men are all thawing frozen sticks of dynamite with a yeah. campfire, which seems like the <laughs> dumbest idea I've ever heard of. Okay, I understand. You got to thaw the dynamite because the the liquid, the liquid nitroglycerin has solidified in the cold, or at least probably become much more gelatin right. like and not not useful. But I I would I would just set it on warm rocks, like heat the rocks in the fire, and then lay the dynamite. On the rock? So you just it, put it against your body? Yeah, just Something put them up your butt. <laughs> and they'll warm in there, against and then you just poop out body. dynamite. <laughs> but it, inside, it's even warmer. It's 98.7 degrees, and it's... I mean, there's always a chance that it'll explode inside of you. <laughs> yeah, see, you see, I wouldn't want it against my body because of the sweating, and then the nitrous gets nitroglycerin gets in your clothes, oh, and then okay. that pops. That's fair. It, it, it just seems like... Slowly. But it's good for your heart, right? You're not going to have oh, a yeah, heart attack. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's gonna be great. I, I almost had a heart attack, but luckily I had a stick of dynamite up my ass. <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> but it seems like the, the s'mores-style thawing of dynamite sticks Yeah, is... but even as they're doing this, uh, Millen is telling them, well, just hold it near the fire. Don't put it in the fire. And Alvin the whole time is just literally like, pushing it through the flames that are just like wrapping around the stick as he's dipping it completely in the fire sundog catches a glimpse of his own incredible pitching hands and can't help but bring them up you know my mama bless her soul she always said my hands were the best part of me your father said the best part of you ran down your mama's leg 
which is a joke that made sense in 1981, but everyone who understood it has been sworn to secrecy. <laughs> I'm I'm assuming it it's fluid jokes. Like, yeah, is that not what that means? The jizz that didn't go inside of her yeah. is yes. not a part of him. No, no, I understand that, but medically they don't. But I'm just <laughs> so they just think it's like just extra ingredient that spilled out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll accept that as an answer then. Later that night, we hear a man playing Darling Clementine on an accordion, and Deke hates it. Clarence cooks some fish for the men, but Deke immediately spits out the first bite he takes. They suddenly hear Johnson singing "Oh My Darling Clementine" along with the accordion. The men prepare the rest of the bundle of dynamite and Alvin accidentally burns a finger on the campfire, but Millen hears him retracting from the flames and freaks out, assuming that he dropped his stick into the campfire. As Johnson continues singing Clementine in the cabin, we are given the impression that something about the lyrics involving the loss of a loved one is resonating with him. It's equally likely that he lost a wife before coming to this part of the world, or that he named the dog Clementine when we weren't looking. Or he just really wants, like... An orange? He's <laughs> yeah, got some scurvy. <laughs> <laughs> when we weren't looking. I like the idea of he got scurvy when we weren't looking. <laughs> yeah. What happened to Richmond anyway? He got scurvy. Is <laughs> that <laughs> from the IT crowd? Yeah. <laughs> you could tell from the impeccable voice work. Millen hands off the dynamite bundle to Sundog, who is instructed with hand signals to light the fuse and toss it onto the cabin roof, and he does so. It seems like that should have been... You say this before you go over there. He's like, like, all right, I'm going to give you this, and then we're going to play fucking a game of charades while you're over there with a lit fuse. He gets behind cover just before the cabin is obliterated. And the trappers move in to count the pieces of Johnson. But when they get to the edge of the crater, formerly known as Cabin, Johnson rises from the rubble, seemingly unscathed, double-fisting shotguns, and starts blasting away at the unsuspecting line of men. How did he survive this? I don't know. I he just stands up. He doesn't even have, like, burn marks on his yeah. face. Yeah, I didn't understand this. I'm like, I thought I missed something, and I'm like, I'm not going to bother rewinding this because I don't care that much, but, like, did he, like, hide under something or get out of the cabin somehow? I don't know. They scramble for cover and fire back, but nobody can shoot worth a damn in this movie except for Johnson and that guy who got it in the neck earlier. The camera zooms into a metal box below Millen and Alvin to show that it's riddled with bullet holes, but I'm not even sure what this thing is. The radio. My guess is that it's the radio, which they could have called in reinforcements with. Millen walks to the edge of the debris pile and Johnson is gone, escaped out the back. Millen predicts that he's headed north through Kruger Pass. They turn to carry their dead back to town, five more bodies. That night, we see Millen packing a bag for the manhunt, and Mrs. McBride watches. She asks if she should wait for him to return or just leave now, and he tells her it's up to her, and then walks out. From overhead, we see Johnson racing through the snow in snowshoes. He's pursued by trappers and mounties with authentic 1930s dog sleds that they were able to locate for the film. Hazel keeps requesting time to rest, but Millen says if they give Johnson time to rest, they'll never catch up with him. From a perch in a treetop, Johnson sees the group approaching with dogs, and he jumps down to run away. Millen and Sundog notice that Johnson is leaving backwards tracks to confuse them, but they don't fall for it. We cut back to Johnson, who is being run ragged by the chase. It seems like he's always running out of breath, and they're yeah. right on his heels. Because they're well supplied, right? and they're hoping to just starve him out. Yeah. Millen decides to climb a tree for a better view, 
and with binoculars is able to spot Johnson looking back at him through another set of binoculars from the rocky peaks of the mountain. He tells the men, and they get moving again. Johnson moves through a river to try and escape his tracks. He finds a cave behind an ice wall on the mountainside and digs his way into it. Dangerous, though, to enter a mountain cave in winter, as mm -hmm. we saw in Windwalker earlier this season, because they likely contain hibernating bears. Around a campfire that night, it suddenly occurs to the men that Hazel is a girl's name. Sundog jokes that Hazel's parents weren't sure if he was a boy or a girl until his teen years, and Hazel pays it backward by aggressively hitting on Alvin. We don't get many pretty young white boys like you. There's only one thing you're good for. Leave me alone, Hazel. Hazel kisses the man hard on the lips until he can finally break away from it. Do you guys remember the last time a man was aggressively kissed against his will? Uh, no. Fear no evil. Mm. Remember in the locker room? Okay. Sure. I don't know if that was against his will. <laughs> he seemed pretty upset about it when they were done. Uh, do you guys recall the last time a man went by what they thought was a female name and they brought it to his attention? Nope. Night Riders? I don't remember that. Who has a lady name? Oh, Night Riders. I was thinking of Night Hawks because <laughs> they were back to back. Uh, Night Riders. Yeah, he. Uh, He's Morgan. Morgan. And he's named after Morgana. Mor yeah, Morgan Lefay. But he doesn't Morgana. have a girl's name, but he's named after a female. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But like they make fun of him around the campfire yep. for having a girl's name. They totally do. And then he he makes a retaliatory joke about somebody else, the same as this guy just did. There you go. Alvin fights back after the kiss, and Millen waits until Hazel has decidedly lost to the fight before allowing Sundog to intervene. Well, well, well. Look who just got uncivilized. We cut to a biplane that has been roped into the manhunt. For the historical chase on which the film is based, this was the first time that airplanes were employed for this purpose by Canadian authorities. The plane used was a Bristol open cockpit biplane, and the one used on set was an exact replica built specifically for the film. I couldn't help but think about how not helpful that would be. because yeah. Well, like, it, it wouldn't be helpful if, you, if you're following tracks and you know which way the guy went, because that's the only purpose that the plane would serve. I guess, because honestly, if you see a dude, you're like, is that the right dude? I don't know. I'm way too far away to tell. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a dude. It's a dude. And should I just shoot at any a dude that I see? Yeah, apparently. Well, the only way I could see it being useful would be not to shoot, which I think is really... For reconnaissance, not for yeah, shooting. Yeah, I, I really don't feel like these planes were designed, maybe they were, to shoot at ground tar targets. Yeah, that seems weird. Um, But would be that if I spotted someone, I would just circle them. Yeah. Just keep circling so anyone you have, who's You on, have an indication of where he is. Yeah, yeah. anyone who's right. on the ground would know, oh, the plane's circling. But obviously at that point, the person being chased is not going to keep making left and right turns. They're just going to go straight. Yeah. At which point there's no advantage again. Because if he keeps moving in the same direction, then it doesn't help to know what direction he's in if you can only move at the same speed you were already going. Yeah. Try crash the plane into him. <laughs> there you go. We cut to a bar where the pilot is bragging about his capabilities, insisting that Johnson has no chance of escape with him on the case. 
A press photographer snaps his photo, and the bartender posts a $500 reward for the man's capture. In response, a nearby journalist announces that his newspaper will offer another $500. That's $1,000 on the head of Albert Johnson! <laughs> Immediately after posting the reward, the bartender jokes with a barmaid. I hope that bastard stays alive forever. Hey. Well, because a whole bunch of people start coming up with, with handfuls of money. Right. And well, are they are they placing bets? Or are they or? participating in the reward? Like, yeah. Either spending their money now, assuming that they're going to get the reward. Maybe. We cut to Johnson's friend Bill's POV through another set of binoculars as he watches the plane coast through the mountains. The plane touches down in the snow and skids up to the manhunt. Alvin assumes it's a supply delivery. The pilot hops out to introduce himself to Millen. I'm Captain Hank Tucker, RCAF. I've come to bring the fugitive to justice. Where's headquarters? Though weirdly, his only credit is as the pilot, despite giving a full name. Captain Tucker has brought along a dossier of Johnson's military past, though as I said, in real life they could find no information about the man. Tucker announces more volunteers for the manhunt will arrive shortly on account of the $1,000 bounty. The pilot wants to help as they follow Johnson across the river chain, but Millen thinks that he's going to take the presumably ironically named Sunshine Pass to Alaska, a feat no man has yet accomplished, and Hazel expresses doubt that it's even possible. The pilot claims to be the best and assures him that he will have no trouble tracking Johnson, but Millen thinks he's in over his head. This is a new era. The future has arrived. Well, if you're part of the future... I don't want to see it. Johnson warms himself by a fire in the cave. See, th- this is where I was really confused about, I was like, at this point I was like, it did say 1931. Yeah. Right? And and like they keep talking about all these things like, th- these are brand new. It's like, yeah. oh, this is new technology. It's like, it's new-ish. I mean, we had radios in the 1800s. Yeah, so. and, and there were radio on pla- radios on planes during the World War One. Right. Um, and so it was just like, I, I kept com- being confused. It's like, is this 1913? Did I transpose no, those no, numbers no. in my head? I mean, I think that they are in a remote part of Canada. But yeah. In Canada, they have different years, kind of the same way they have mm. different prices on books. <laughs> it's just like, you have to, Canada years are different. <laughs> time, time took a while to get there somehow. <laughs> Johnson warms himself by a small fire in the cave. Deke and Clarence, alone at a separate small camp, make an alliance, agreeing to split the reward if they catch Johnson first. They hear footsteps in the plains behind them, and nearly fire on old Bill as he wanders through the trees. Hold your fire, boys! It's only me, Bill Loose! (laughs) I thought you was the man trapping. (laughs) Bill starts drinking and hands a bottle around. Clarence invites Bill to join their hunt, claiming to be the only team who've seen the fugitive. Sure. Except Melon, Hazel, Sundog, and, uh, and me. And he takes out Clarence and Deke with two bullets. Bill moves around the camp collecting gold teeth from the dead men, implying that Bill is in fact the mad trapper responsible for the deaths they had previously attributed to Johnson. Okay, so I was so confused at yeah. this point. Yeah. Because I think that I cuz I had to watch this movie in chunks and I think I had forgotten the line that they had before about like the mad trappers is stealing teeth and stuff. Yeah. And I think that I might have when I heard it, I just like 
you know, okay, this urban legend of this dude who just is a good hunter is out here that, you know, they attribute things that aren't actually true, like he steals teeth. But it turns out this guy but totally this, legit But then that. I saw this and I'm like, oh, it's Bill. He's friends with the guy. So he's doing this to help him. So I, it never occurred to me that they were trying to imply that this guy was a serial killer just for funsies yeah. and stealing teeth. But that's what happens. He's, yeah. He collects teeth and yeah. he sells them for a living. Yeah, but it didn't occur to me until now when yeah. we're talking about Do it. Do you remember the last time we saw someone that collected human teeth for a living? Death ship? Death ship? No, yeah. it was more recent than that. Shoot, what was it? I remember because we 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 were we were reminded of Death Ship. Uh, what was it? Also involved the Holocaust in World War Two. He collected all the gold teeth so that he could buy his way into high society after the war. Oh, was it in just a gigolo? No. Formula. The formula. formula. Oh. I really liked that this kind of B plot came around yeah because like like jesse i thought i was like oh they're just talking about an urban legend like he steals your teeth i was like oh there really isn't there really is a murderer yeah, it's here. not a boogeyman it's a real thing <laughs> it's a real guy um and i too also thought though he was doing this to help uh help his friend in the hunt like like i'll take out these two guys oh yeah i think that's definitely true still that that he's helping he was trying to help him i think he's helping him by killing the people but the taking the teeth out is because he he collects teeth. Well, not, I don't know. Not because I, he's trying to make it look like the. Because I feel like killing these guys doesn't isn't necessarily helping him because more people are dead in his pursuit. But it's fewer people shooting at him. At That's least. true. But well, they're gonna think that Albert did this. But spoiler alert: later on, we're gonna find out that the teeth from these mouths are not the only teeth he had on him. Yeah. No, yeah, I know, no. but I, I disagree that he's. I well, I mean, again, spoiler alert: I thought. He was trying to help, but I think now in having seen the whole movie that he's just trying to eliminate his competition because no one else is, knows what he looks like. Oh, okay. That oh, makes sense. Maybe. That, okay. Yeah. That makes more sense then. Especially with the scene that happens at the end. Yeah. Okay. I'll buy that for a dollar. Plus you get some free teeth out of it. We cut back to Johnson who's breaking a hole in the ice of his cave floor, which is odd. This is not a frozen lake. He's in a cave in the wall of a mountain, and he broke through the ground, and there's water underneath him. Maybe he's in a waterfall? He must be on top of a frozen waterfall, I guess. He reaches into the hole blindly and just happens to yank out a fish, but then drops it back into the hole immediately. He's a skilled hunter. Not super skilled. He dropped it. Well, but I'm just saying, I don't think he randomly pulled out a fish. He very intentionally was able to grab a fish. Yeah, I, I think he expected <laughs> to pull out a fish, but there was no reason that there should have been a fish right where his hand closed when he did that. <laughs> Millen and Sundog talk about why it's so important to Millen that he finds Johnson. He deserves me, not them. Later in the hunt... We see Johnson running with caribou to hide his tracks, but Sundog notices something about his tracks. His strides are getting shorter. Means he's getting tired. The pilot spots Johnson moving up the face of the mountain and fires on him with guns mounted on the plane, which yeah. I was not expecting. The plane loops around and around and finally swings down for a third pass, firing on Johnson, but hitting and killing Sundog. Using his rifle, 
Johnson manages to hit the plane a couple times, causing engine trouble, possibly an oil leak, and the plane is smoking and eventually crashes at the foot of the mountain. Alvin demands that they bury Sundog immediately, because if they don't, the dogs will eat him, and Millen is not willing to wait another minute to end the hunt. He instead recommends shooting the dogs so they can keep moving. When the rest of the hunting team catches up with Millen and Alvin, Millen points to Sundog's body and tells everyone to stand back. He warns that Johnson will do the same to them if they dare to follow. Millen and Alvin leave on their own ahead of the group. Alvin asks Millen why he seems to sympathize with Johnson, and he explains that Johnson hasn't done anything that Millen wouldn't do in his situation. Every kill we've seen has been self-defense. The only reason he's still hunting the man is because he's worried the other trappers will continue the fight and die in droves all over this mountain if he doesn't end it first. Eventually, we see Bill Luce, the mad trapper, moving through the snowy woods on his own, but he keeps hearing footsteps behind him. Bill sees Johnson in the distance facing away from him, and lifts his rifle to fire on him. After a shot rings out, Johnson approaches him from the side. Apparently this was a trick to lure Bill into shooting at him. Yeah. The trapper you never knew was there. Yes. <laughs> Not from the front, but from the sides. My old man warned me never to trust you. Millen and Alvin proceed in the direction of shots fired. Millen sees someone in a heavy fur coat crossing through the snow and fires multiple times until the figure collapses. You got him. He didn't move like Johnson. Better check it out, but be careful. Well, go on. <laughs> well, go on. <laughs> yeah. like, go on, like, one-eyed Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I was Elvin, I'd be saying, hell no. <laughs> yeah. Go poke the body. I bet he's dead. When Alvin reaches the body, he nearly vomits because the man's face has been blown clean off. His face is blown off! Just then... Millen notices Johnson clearing the peak of the mountains and raises a gun at him. They look at each other for a moment, and then Millen decides to let Johnson go. What'd you see up there? Nothing. Just my eyes playing tricks on me. Johnson disappears over the mountaintop, but not before Alvin gets a look at him through the binoculars. Millen leaves the final choice to Alvin to make. Do we follow the rules and pursue this man through the mountains, or do we end the killing and go home? It reminded me of the end of Raise the Titanic, when Dirk Pitt gives the opportunity to reveal the final resting place of the stockpile of Byzantium. He's like, all right, now are you a man of your word? Are you going to try and spare people, or are you going to try and follow the rules? Okay, so the guy that Bill getting his face shot off. Yeah. It would seem to me that, you know, Johnson being the smart guy he was would have tried to maim him so that they would he would run off and they'd shoot him and... They would think that they got him, and it would and it would be a decoy, and he could get away. Right? So, do you think Johnson cut his face off? Well, that's my question. Did did they get? Did they shoot his face off? Did like Alvin shoot his face off, or who, or or Millen shoot his face off, just by chance? I hadn't thought of that. I I assume I assume that it was it, that it was by chance that it was coincidence. Yeah. Okay. But that would be really incredible if the implication was that. He painstakingly carved the man's face off and then just sent him running in a direction. Well, that's kind of what I thought happened because then if they shot him, they wouldn't necessarily be able to identify that it wasn't him and right. he would could have gotten away, you know, scot free. That's pretty impressive. Well, I, I would say that that's le- to me that's less likely the thing only because when they see uh, the guy running, he has a face. 
<laughs> and there's not a big blood trail behind him. Well, well and he says it's blown off. Well, and, and I imagine he'd have to cut it off to do it in a way that doesn't reveal their position right. immediately. And, and also, when Lee Marvin calls out Johnson, the guy turns and takes a pot shot at them. I, if I didn't, if I had my face all cut up, well, as or, long as I had ear holes left, I could <laughs> shoot at the voice. <laughs> and then they just find a face in the snow. So like, it was Oh God! So it wasn't a to, a to the pain. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe it was because he had these perfect ears. But like if... If they wanted to imply that, I would like for them to show Charles Bronson up at the top of the mountain just eating the face. <laughs> or where, to cover or the where, evidence. Where it goes. <laughs> <laughs> he just has it strapped over his own face. Oh, man. Oh, my God. Or no, he has it on the back of his head so it looks like... He's <laughs> going backwards? <laughs> <laughs> They'll never know which way I'm going if I have a face on the back of my head. No, that's not how things work. It also keeps magpies away. <laughs> I hate that cat. <laughs> the cat is just terrified of two-faced people. Aren't we all? <laughs> but, okay, why did Bill shoot at them? Because they shot at him, I thought. Or because he wants to kill more people that are chasing Bronson. Well, well I think, so Marvin and Alvin come out, and yeah. they see a figure in... Uh, Johnson's clothes. Right. And so Marvin calls out to Johnson. It's actually Bill Luce. I, right. I don't know if we've said that. But he's worried he's going to get shot. He's worried he's going to get shot and and be found with a bag full of human teeth. And that's why I think he fires back at them to give him a chance to try to like, like maybe if he fires, they'll hunker down and he can run away. But okay. also, as we've established, he wants the Johnson reward. So it's... It, for the same reason that he killed Clarence and Deke, he's going to try and kill these two guys and then go get Johnson on his own. Okay. So sure. he fires on them, but they get him first and they take his face off with a bullet. Maybe. When the hunters catch up, they find dozens of gold teeth on the mad trapper's body and accept immediately that this must be Johnson. They ask Alvin who fired the killing shot. Who shot him, Constable? Huh? Who shot Albert Johnson? Millen. Edgar Millen killed Albert Johnson. Where is he? We get one last glimpse of Johnson headed down the other side of the mountain with a face on the back of his head. No, that'd be cool though. <laughs> and that's the end of our film. In the true story, Albert Johnson only killed one of the RCMP team that was chasing him, and it was Lee Marvin's character, Millen, who was only 31 at the time. Afterward, Johnson was surrounded and killed by the remaining manhunters. I couldn't find any evidence that Johnson, as the mad trapper, actually collected the gold teeth of his victims, but it's likely that the misunderstanding arose from teeth with gold fillings that were found in his pockets after he died that were believed to be his own teeth. Mm. So his teeth had fallen out, but he had kept them because they were valuable. And they found it and they were like, oh, this is he's been collecting teeth this whole time. And it's like, no, these are just two of his own teeth from his own mouth. The crazy pilot in the film, based on Captain Wilford May was actually credited with tracking Johnson down and never crashed the plane. So he did what he was supposed to. He caught the guy. The filmmakers decided to have the plane represent the technology of the future, and so the crash was a victory for the past and for Johnson's old ways. But the implication of the movie is that the true story that Johnson was captured and killed is because of this lie that the characters told in the movie. Mm. So in the oh. real, real life, oh. the guy got away. I see. Okay. 
I don't know. It wasn't, I don't understand why you'd want to make a movie out of this story in the first place. Yeah, there's a lot of stories. The, I, don't, well, I don't know why you like on this There's a lot of more one. interesting stories yeah. than g- guy killed dude, bunch of people went after him and killed him. But that was also like, um, it's a it's a popular genre, the whole like, guy didn't really do anything wrong and people are trying to kill him so he's fighting for his for self-defense purposes. Yeah. Well, I, I, the more modern version of this is something John like, Wick. The, well, I was going to say The Revenant. Oh, okay. Uh, where, you know, this group gets betrayed yeah and he just spends the whole movie trying to get back at the guys who had wronged him through these arctic Mm -hmm. uh areas um the true story of that uh in the movie in the spoiler for people who haven't seen the revenant yeah uh in the movie the revenant they try to make it seem like dicaprio's character is upset because tom hardy's killed his son yeah in the actual story it's because Tom Hardy's character stole his gun and he wanted his gun back. So he was willing to kill anyone and everyone to get his gun back. <laughs> Which, so, why not just make that the story? Like, that's that's compelling that someone would care that much about a weapon. Yeah, but I think it's more compelling to the not... It also seems it makes it seem really petty. Yeah. Like, but I'll, I th- I'll I think kill that's what everyone I like about until it. I get my gun back. I think that's a more interesting character. Literally anybody would fight to, to avenge their child. Yeah. But how many people are crazy enough to fight to just to get a weapon back? Uh... And so that's why I kind of feel like Death Hunt is sure. is of that like oh here's the story, kind of true, kind of interesting. Let's let's fudge the facts a bit, make him a sympathetic character. And it's also probably a relatively cheap movie that we can shoot up in the mountains somewhere. Yeah. And all we need are like four big names. And originally they had like a trio set up of the director of the Dirty Dozen and two of the stars of the Dirty Dozen, but mm-hmm. then they screwed I that up. I think then what I, what I'm missing from this though that movies like John Wick or Revenant have is just more i needed to understand this albert johnson character better like i needed i needed more insight into why i cared that he survived and why i liked him because saving a dog was pretty good but like that's about it yeah that's fair i mean from the very beginning of this podcast it's been clear that i think he bought the dog and you think he stole the dog so clearly i'm (laughs) favoring i'm putting him in a more sympathetic light than you yeah. See, and i thought he saved the dog sure yeah but i mean i i'm just i guess I, what i'm saying is that we didn't we don't get enough character development right no, there's almost none and and even when they're describing his military history there's nothing relevant in that scene yeah so it was it was totally pointless to make up because we don't learn anything about him as a character. The closest thing we get to learning anything about his backstory is when he looks kind of forlorn when he's singing My Clementine yeah. in the cabin. And it made me think that his wife just died and that that's why he's here. It, it would have been cool to bring up, like I know they brought up like that he was like like in intelligence or special forces or something. Right. Um, because he's he, he knows how to like dig in. He knows how to- And how to them. survive yeah. In, yeah. in these like, extreme environments. Yeah, I, I feel like that, that more of that needed to be kind of like told because how many lines of dialogue does Charlie Bronson actually have in this film? Almost none. Yeah. Like he has buying the dog. He talks to the dog. He, 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 he says very little to the shopkeeper. He basically um, only talks to Millen for the rest of the movie. Yeah, he he says like he says like one cool line to the guy he blows away, and then for the rest of the movie he doesn't say anything. Yeah, yeah. Like it's literally just him running the whole time. Well, they're playing to Bronson's strengths. 
<laughs> Angry silent guy. Yeah. I the other thing that I think could have used more development though was I I liked the Millen character. Yeah. I mm-hmm. wanted more in terms of his transformation. Conf- well, his conflict between doing what's right and you know like following the law which would dictate that he has to go after this guy yeah and you know and like his relationship with hazel like i wanted him to have to fight these guys more about this instead of just being like all right hazel i gotta do what i gotta do and then he goes out and does it it's just like no we don't like hazel yeah why are you a servant of this yeah stop going along with it like i know you you said there was a line in there where he's like you got to account for every kill or something like that so he like he has a responsibility because he's a mountie but i wanted there to be more conflict between him and these guys that he knows are basically like lying to him and bullshitting him to get at to get revenge right and he also um they hint at a flaw that he has his alcoholism and really just the one scene where they're hunting and he comes over and he says fuck you guys if this was a grizzly bear we'd all be dead yeah and they were like what does that have to do with anything it wasn't a grizzly bear it was a it was a deer that i shot and you're welcome for the meat uh, but before that, when he's drinking, he's sociable and happy, and mm. he doesn't make any stupid mistakes. And for the rest of the movie, he never drinks again. Yeah. So I think there could have been, they could have documented his transformation from a drunkard to like having to sober up to compete like man to man with this yeah. survivalist character in the wilderness. Yeah. But instead, it's just like, a, oh, you know what? It doesn't really matter. We don't need to touch on the drinking anymore. And the weird love story. Yeah, with, what was yeah. that? It was pointless. Or, or I think was it was just to bring in another. To bring in an actress to put on the poster. Um, or, I mean, maybe I'm looking too much into it. Maybe it wasn't a love story. It was just like a, hey, you want to hook up kind of thing. But I, I didn't really get... Right, but it didn't it didn't, it didn't, didn't do any character development Correct. for us with Millen, yeah. which is what you'd want. You'd be like, oh, is there backstory here that he's lost his wife? Is there backstory here that he's a lonely dude looking for something more than what he has right now and doesn't want to be a Mountie anymore? Which or is he, just sharing this woman whatever. who lives in their office. Yeah. Uh, I feel like Millen has an okay arc. Alvin has an okay arc. Uh, you know, like, as far as those characters, like... I feel like those are characters who have grown and somewhat changed throughout. Does, does Hazel die? Well, he's shot in the legs, and so I guess I, I presume that he's left for dead because he can't walk out of there unless yeah. someone finds him. Um, but uh, Bronson... It just seems like if we're going to see any of these guys die, that it should yeah. be Hazel because he's been forcing this problem the whole time. Yeah. You look at a movie like First Blood, uh, again, another like... Sure mistaken manhunt uh-huh. bad bad circumstances uh, of course the 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 Millen character in that is much more the antagonist right yeah uh brian dennehy's character uh it's funny because when when we get around to letterboxd i have it very close to ruckus mm. which is another sort of a first blood story yeah 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 um, and very similar to this but but you get a lot about John Rambo's character in the first like ten minutes of that movie. Yeah, they don't waste any time. Yeah, he he's you know he's sad. He's looking for his old army buddy, only to find out that everyone in his unit's now dead. The last person he thought was alive is dead, and then this cop's hassling him, and all he wants to do is just kind of like find a place to somebody to eat. You know, it's just, yeah. You you get so much about him just in those moments, and then he s- snaps, and and brings war to this town yeah 
and and Bronson just is the same throughout. Like nothing changes for Bronson. And also most of what he's doing is just running away, which isn't a compelling protagonist. Yeah. Like he's not like setting up traps and fighting back the whole time. Mm-hmm. The only times he ever shoots is when people are shooting at him. Which is also weird because like when they say they're going to go after him, he's like, oh, well, he's probably running already. And it's like, no, he's he's like hunkered down in this cabin. And then, and so you're like, oh, okay, so this is a guy who's going to stay and fight. And then he yeah. just runs for the yeah. rest of the movie. Yeah, as soon as the cabin like, explodes okay. and he I'm magically sorry, survives it. What are we saying about this guy? What kind of guy is he? Does he stay and fight or does he run? I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that to a certain extent, we're he's kind of portrayed as a coward character because he spends more than half of the movie running away from people that are trying to bring him to justice. Yeah, I, I think if he had spent his time not fortifying his cabin, he could have gotten away. Like, right, yeah. Like right? scot-free. Yeah. Because the, the amount of time it took them and the amount of time it would take them to realize that he's not even in there, like, you know, like he, he could have been so much further away. But then also the implication is that when he crosses over this mountain range that he was a free man He'll regardless of whether or not they were still pursuing him because yeah. he's in Alaska right. now so he's out of Canada jurisdiction correct but so yeah he could have gotten there very easily but it's also a little bit irrelevant by the time he gets there because they were going to let him go anyway but right yeah so I, what I think this movie needed was he if I would if I wanted to tell the same story in a similar way, the thing that I would change would be that he does get taken in and that's when the guys are trying to kill him before he can tell his side of the story. Right, right, right. Mm. And that's where that's where the chase begins. Like So like he he surrenders to Millen, mm-hmm. but then that night Hazel breaks into the tent where they're keeping him. Right. And they try to kill him in the night and he manages to fight them off. It it could it could even be like like a assault on precinct 13 in that Millen is now ha- dedicated to trying to keep him alive. Cause he made a promise. I, I promise I'd bring you in safe. It's like a and 16 th- block situation. Yeah. 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 I think that's a much more interesting and you still get everything that's going on in this film. You still get I, the chase. I, I don't think the problem was that the guy wasn't justified enough in his escape though. Really? Uh, yeah. I mean, he, he, he has a, I, I like they have his military past. I didn't like that. I, yeah. I, it, I liked knowing less about him because he, he talked about it like his dad was in like a a, a prison. It's like, oh, so he comes from like criminal blood. Or he like, comes from wrongly accused blood. Yeah. And he doesn't feel like continuing that family tradition. Um, but, but now they say like he's got like, and he's got all this money, which is. Yeah. Where which, is the money like, coming from if it, it's not that, teeth? Yeah. I, I, so I don't really understand that aspect. Yeah. Um. I, I feel like I'm I'm being really negative about this movie. I actually really liked it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think sometimes when when a movie's almost good, then you pick on it a little bit more because you're like, look how close you were to good. Yeah, I don't know. We've spent it's, we've spent like 20 minutes talking about how to make this a better movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, but we wouldn't bother to do that for Happy Birthday to me. <laughs> Touche. Okay, it's it's still not a thumbs up for me. I no, I tell, I, I wouldn't tell anybody to watch this movie. Yeah, no, it's a thumbs down for me too. Oh, it's enough for me. All right. Well, that's good. One of us should approve of it. Um, Letterbox. What are we thinking, Jess? Um, uh, I have this at number thirty-seven out of sixty-four. 
It is above Charlie Chan, but below Nighthawks. All right. I have it at uh, 13. Oh, wow. <laughs> you love this movie. I, 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 I had a good run uh, with me. Um, this puts it below the Omen 3, but above Eyewitness. I have it at 48. Woof. So I'm on the other side of the spectrum here, but I didn't hate it. Um, I just like all movies. Um, <laughs> but Death Hunt is under Ruckus and above King of the Mountain for me. Yeah. You're not very discerning. I guess not. What does that say about you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just saying you like all movies. So I, I don't know. that Putting it that low doesn't say much. Yeah. It's like if you looked at back when they still had the star ratings on Netflix, I gave literally everything I watched five stars. <laughs> <laughs> Our director here was Peter R. Hunt. He started off as an editor on the first three Bond films and then took over the directing chair for the first and only turn from George Lazenby on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Last year, he was one of several uncredited directors on the Burt Reynolds vehicle Rough Cut, and he comes back in 85 and 86 for Wild Geese 2 and Hyper Sapien People from Another Star, respectively. Writers Michael Gray, or Grace, and Mark Victor, this was their first screenplay. Together they later wrote Poltergeist and Poltergeist 2, Marked for Death, a Steven Seagal film, and more recently, Cool World, which I like. The music here was from Gerald Immel. He was the composer for Megaforce in 82. He also composed the theme music for Voyagers, Dallas, Knott's Landing, and Walker, Texas Ranger. Editor John F. Burnett previously edited The Owl and the Pussycat, The Sunshine Boys, Murder by Death, The Goodbye Girl, and Grease. Last year he cut Can't Stop the Music. Later this season he still has rich and famous and he returns next year for Greece 2 more recently he was the editor on 10 episodes of baywatch nights the other editor alan jacobs previously cut blackula and cleopatra jones he's back later this season for the pursuit of db cooper charles bronson played albert johnson he's probably best known for the death wish series or the magnificent seven films he's the tunnel king in the great escape and we've seen his work in cabo blanco and borderline so far on the show we'll see him next in death wish 2 he later worked with the same director, Peter Hunt, for 87's Assassination. Lee Marvin played Millen. He's probably best known for Major Reisman and The Dirty Dozen, also starring Bronson. And even before that, they both appeared in 1951's You're in the Navy Now, starring Gary Cooper. Sounds great. I love Gary Cooper. <laughs> he won his Oscar as the lead actor of Cat Ballou. He's A number one in Emperor of the North, and last season we saw him as the unnamed sergeant in The Big Red One. Andrew Stevens played Alvin. He was Elliot in Munchie and Shelby in Munchie Strikes Back. He later moved behind the camera for writing and directing credits. He wrote three films of the Night Eyes series and more recently a Fred Olin Ray film called Abner the Invisible Dog. Carl Weathers played Sundog. Relatively early credit for Weathers, though he was already a huge name after playing Apollo Creed in Rocky 1 and 2. He later goes on to play Dylan in The Predator, the titular Action Jackson, Chubbs in Happy Gilmore, himself on Arrested Development, and he's the voice of Combat Carl in Toy Story 4. More recently, he played Grief Karga on the Disney Plus series The Mandalorian. Ed Lauder played Hazel. He faces off with Chuck Bronson again in Death Wish 3. He's Carnahan in the 76 King Kong. He's Joe Camber in Cujo, and last year we saw him as Sheriff Bob in Loose Shoes. 
I was sure we'd seen him in something else for the show recently, but it might have just been because we watched Magic recently, where he played Duke. Angie Dickinson played Vanessa McBride. She was Feathers in Rio Bravo. We saw her last year as Kate Miller in De Palma's Dress to Kill, and I covered her work in Klondike Fever, a minisode which is actually weirdly similar to this film, because it takes place largely in Alaska, with snowy mountains and log cabins, and as I already mentioned, it features a guy who buys a dog out of a fight from a corrupt character who kept changing the price of the dog to urge against the sale. The dog's original owner spends the rest of the film chasing down the protagonist for revenge for the stolen dog. Dickinson appeared twice before alongside Lee Marvin in Don Siegel's The Killers and John Borman's Point Blank. Yeah. Uh, Point Blank uh, is not my favorite film. <laughs> um, but it's Borman, so it's not a waste of time. Yeah, uh, it's, it's it's very well made. It's it's a strange kind of movie, too, as most Borman films are. Yes. Um, but this that movie was remade with Mel Gibson uh, in the film Payback. Oh, okay. With Coburn and his alligator boots. Mm-hmm. Henry Beckman played Bill Luce. He was Barton Kelly in The Brood. William Sanderson was Ned Warren. Uh, William Sanderson is J.F. Sebastian in Blade Runner, but I always think of E.B. Farnham from Deadwood. He was also Sheriff Bud Dearborn on True Blood, and we saw him in Coal Miner's Daughter as a moonshiner who tries to recruit Doolittle. James O'Connell played Hurley. He's a conductor in Who Framed Roger Rabbit and a bathroom attendant in The Cable Guy. He was also a stage manager in Hero at Large last year, and we just had him last week as the judge in Cora and Frank's trial from The Postman Always Rings Twice. Len Lesser played Lewis. He's probably best known as Uncle Leo on Seinfeld. I didn't even watch Seinfeld, and that's for sure what I recognize him from. <laughs> Richard Devalos played Beeler. He's Blind Dick in Cool Hand Luke and Aaron Trask in East of Eden. Last year on the show, we reviewed his work as Yago of the Malmori in Battle Beyond the Stars, and as his name would suggest, he is the father of MacGyver regular Alyssa Devalos and grandfather of Man in the High Castle actress Alexa Devalos. Maury Chaikin played Clarence. We saw him last year as Canuck, the fake Native American in Nothing Personal, and Harvey Cannon in The Kidnapping of the President. He's also in Curtains, War Games, Twins, Millennium, Dances with Wolves, My Cousin Vinny, and a little comedy I like called Bartleby, led by Crispin Glover. August Schellenberg played Deke de Blurg. <laughs> He's back later this season as Norrell and Tarak in Heavy Metal. More recently, he was Chief Powhatan in Terrence Malick's The New World. Rayford Barnes played Trapper Number 3. He's Buck in The Wild Bunch. Maurice Kowalewski played Charlie Rat. He was Dr. Silverstein and raised the Titanic last year. Sean McMahon played News Reporter. That's the guy who takes the picture in the bar. Mm -hmm. He was Jake in Nothing Personal last year. And earlier this season, he was a detective in Atlantic City. He's also O'Brien in Naked Lunch and Frank Rittenauer in Tommy Boy. Steve Finkel played W.W. Douglas. He was one of the reporters in Blood Beach earlier this year. Dennis LaCroix played Jimmy Tom. He was one of the killers in the barn in Scanners. Tantu Cardinal played Indian Woman. She played Black Shawl in Dances with Wolves and Pet in Legends of the Fall. She was also Snowbird on Dr. Quinn, and more recently she was Alice Crowhart in Wind River. Did you see Wind River? Oh, uh, yeah. It's really good. It's really, really good. Uh, Steve Myrer played the shopkeeper's assistant. And that's an uncredited role because I don't remember the shopkeeper even having an assistant. But uh, he served as the director's apprentice during the production and was given mm. a part in the film as a result. 
I think that's everything for Death Hunt. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Bustin' Loose which IMDb describes like so. The director of a foster home is forced to move her kids from Philadelphia to Seattle in a broken-down bus driven by a fast-talking parolee assigned to the task. A hilarious road trip adventure. little editorializing there, but okay. We leave you now with a trailer for Bustin' Loose. Richard Pryor is Joe Braxton. He's an ex-con. You know what I was in prison for, Joe? What? what? Murder. With a mean parole officer. I'm gonna burn your butt on this one, man. Braxton's bad. Stop the bus! Shut up! I don't like your attitude. So what? I mean, he's really bad. <laughs> and he's busting loose. Big money changes hands back there. Action out here, too. Some big money could change hands there, too, huh? Richard Pryor. You fool! And Cicely Tyson. <laughs> busting loose. Don't forget it. Try me one time, you understand? Get me working on a mother... Richard Pryor and Cicely Tyson in Bustin' Loose from Universal.